This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi. Today marks 75 years since Great Britain and its allies formally accepted Nazi Germany's surrender. It's called VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. It's an important one, not only for the generation that fought and sacrificed with their lives, but also those who were at home living through the long and deadly destructive Second World War. But of course, what's going on today, 75 years later with the pandemic, makes it a bit difficult to try to commemorate what is going on today. To talk more about that, we're joined by Global News. News European Bureau Chief uh, Crystal Gumansing. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning. Now, I understand you're at Buckingham Palace and the Queen is going to be making an address tonight. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that's one of the uh, anticipated uh, acknowledgements of the 75th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day. Uh, she's actually doing the address right at nine o'clock at night. That's the exact time that her father made his address 75 years ago. So people are uh, anticipating that uh, speech and wondering exactly what she'll talk about. Of course, uh, back then, she was a wartime princess. She was involved in activities as a member of the Women's Auxiliary Territorial Service. We know that, we know that she was a mechanic and a driver, uh, and so it'll be interesting to see if she shares any of, of uh, her personal experiences in that address tonight. We also saw members of the royal family uh, out laying wreaths earlier. It is really hard, given the lockdown, given the pandemic, Pandemic, all of the big important celebrations to acknowledge the veterans of the Second World War had to be cancelled because, of course, we can't have, you know, mass crowds and people getting together. So there are other efforts um, being made to try to acknowledge the sacrifice and the struggles. Uh, we've seen a flyby earlier this morning, two minutes of silence uh, also held, and a lot, a lot of stuff on social media, people being encouraged to share stories. There will be a uh, nationwide sing-along later tonight and um, I don't know if you've had time or if you uh, use Spotify but uh, there's even a Spotify VE Day playlist. Really? So <laughs> That's a good one. So this sounds like something is it going to be marked all over Europe today? Yeah, it's uh, everyone sort of had their own uh, different ceremonies at different times when uh, you know their their days were acknowledged. But it's right across Europe, hugely important, not only for Europeans though. We have to remember the Allied forces. This is a huge important day for Canadians. There were so many Canadians uh, who were still in Europe on the front lines in Germany when victory was declared 75 years ago, and they joined in the massive celebrations in Paris and in London when that speech by Winston Churchill was made on uh, this very day, 75 years ago, people poured into the streets. It was a huge celebration. It went basically throughout the weekend and uh, and that was a big part of it. So we don't see those sort of celebrations, those massive street parties today, but um, amazing video and tributes on social media to really try to um, push this forward so people in, in this current generation
population can understand the sacrifice of of not only Brits but uh, Canadians and and all of those in the Allied forces. What is the mood like, Crystal, then in the UK these days? I mean, it's been tough, right? The numbers are still very high. They've surpassed Italy. They're dealing. They're grappling with the lockdown orders. What's it feeling like there? You know what? It is still so mixed, and and it, it kind of feels how um, people described it to me in Italy uh, when they were still dealing with the lockdown, and they said, you know, you just kind of um, accept it and stay home and just wait for it all to end and hope that it ends soon. Uh, I, I, I don't even think people are fighting it anymore, that they're just accepting of it, hoping things get better and will uh, will begin to ease. And, and we may see that um, uh, this, this weekend, later this weekend, we might get some word on uh, a few changes. We're being told there'll be nothing major changed, but there, there might be a little bit of an easing. Right. So for now, VE Day, which is normally a huge day to commemorate in the UK in particular, sounds like it'll be a bit muted. It is a little muted. A lot of effort uh, going on to try to make it still really, really um, important. It's the 75th anniversary. That's a huge milestone, especially when you think of the veterans that are still alive. Um, You know, 75 years, we'll have even fewer of these wonderful uh, individuals next year. So 75 years was an important acknowledgement. They're really trying to sort of do this now on social media, encouraging people to, you know, decorate their homes, put up V flags and posters in their windows and of course share anything on social media. There is uh, later tonight going to be that national sing-along of the We Will Meet Again and uh, and a toast later tonight where they're encouraging everyone to raise a glass and, and say what they call the national toast which is to those who gave so much we thank you. Crystal, thank you so much for telling us about it today. You're welcome. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. They're often the key link for travelers arriving in Toronto, a way to get home or to a hotel. And now it's been learned that several taxi and limousine drivers working at Canada's busiest airport have died from COVID-19. Not just several. The union representing Toronto Pearson Airport taxi drivers says that 10 of its members have died due to COVID-19. Now, you're getting into a taxi or meeting people who've come in from the airport, all of that, that's a risk that transportation providers are dealing with these days. So after hearing that story from Toronto yesterday, we thought, well, wait a minute, what is happening here in Vancouver? We wanted to get a better idea of that. So joining us now is Carolyn Bauer, General Manager at Yellow Cab in Vancouver. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning, Simi. I hope you're staying safe. I am. I hope you are too. How are the taxi drivers doing? You know, we have done, our guys, have they're just my champions, my heroes. They're out there every day. You know, we don't have a full fleet, but, you know, when this initially started, we uh, completely, we got poly, we sealed off the back seat from the front seat to protect the drivers while the shields were being built. We were able to get gloves and masks in for the drivers and able to get, you know, what a, a high-grade uh, disinfectant and fill up bottles and pass them out to the drivers to use all the time. And we don't, I don't know of anyone that has been tested positive huh. as a taxi driver. So I do don't you, know of anybody. Do you, so did Vancouver do different than all those just things that you just described there? Did other jurisdictions not do that? Did Toronto not do that? I don't think they, I, possibly they didn't jump on it as fast. You know, they, they lag behind us a little bit from, mm-hmm. you know, when we first came out. And, of course, Dr. Bonnie and the government have done an excellent job of providing information nonstop to us. 
So with that being said, as I said, we had the poly dividers in the cars before the end of March. Like I think it was the last week of March we put them all in. No front seat passengers for the drivers. Uh, you know, we really did everything we could to protect them and keep them safe. As I said, they're heroes. They're yeah. they're moving all the caregivers. They're taking them to the, the nursing homes. You know, they're delivering blood. They're, you know, hospital back and forth delivery. So they are champions and my heroes up there. No kidding. And they're safe. And they're safe. And so what yeah. it, what's the process then for kind of disinfecting between shifts or how often are the cars cleaned? So we have uh, what's called the eliminator. It's a new chemical. It's a chemical that was... Uh, Approved through uh, Government Canada it was actually used back in the days when SARS was around. And so the process is, is that they, they have to disinfect immediately before they start their shift. And then they have to do it three and four times throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And of course, no one in the front seat. And we just ordered a chemical fogger uh, that we expect in in the next week that we will be putting in at the beginning of the shift and at the end of the shift before anybody gets into it so that we can really get the car, you know, really disinfected every part of it, you know, the roof and everything, the ceiling inside. And, and so and we're pretty excited about that coming in. How many drivers are working right now, Carolyn? You said the fleet has been very much reduced, but what, what, is the stats, what are the stats on that? Uh, the stats on that, we've got about 73, 75 cars on the road for uh, Yellow Cab. Blacktop has about 49 cars. You know, we're running about, in Vancouver, we're probably running close to about 100, for the Vancouver Taxi Association, that's Bonnie's and everybody, Bonnie's, Richmond, North Shore Taxi, and the Vancouver companies, we're running about 240 taxis, so it's reduced dramatically from, you know, our 1,400, right? Yeah. And uh, the airport cars, there's usually about 100 airport cars operating, you know, that's any given time. There's not many trips coming out of the airport. And, of course, the airport has done a great job, or Government BC has done a great job of screening everyone now and making sure that anybody coming out is, you know, staying quarantined, and not many are taking taxis, actually. So how do the drivers feel about that, though? Because, I mean, that's kind of scary. When the height of this was, you know, going on three, four weeks ago, how did they feel about being out and about and welcoming people into their taxis? You know, they were afraid. There's no question. They're afraid. Their families were begging them to stay home. You know, a lot of my guys out there, they've got, you know, their kids at home. And in many cases, they've got moms and dads living with them. And they were afraid. They're just afraid. But, you know, as I said, they're my heroes. And we did everything we could to make them feel safer. You know, and the, the masks, you know, don't touch anything. The gloves, change your gloves if you have to 10 times a day. It doesn't matter. You know, just just keep yourself safe. But they're... There's a few of them that are afraid, you know, when people get in and they don't have a mask and they're coughing, the sneeze, the, the shields help, but, you know, it does stay in the air. So when someone's coughing and the guys, you know, get out immediately, as soon as that person's out, get their mask on and spray the inside just to make sure that the next person getting in is safe. How busy is it, Carolyn? Do you envision that getting busier in the weeks ahead as the province starts to slowly kind of open up a little bit more? You know, Yellow Cab right now is extremely busy. As I said, we're moving a lot of essential workers. We're essential service ourselves, so we're moving a lot of essential workers. So for our fleet, we're doing, I mean, we're down about 7,000 trips a day. So we're doing just over 3,000 trips. Right? So we're, we're down quite a bit, but the mm-hmm. guys are out there and they're doing it. You know, and they're not making great money doing it, but they're doing it. And I said they're my, 
my unsung heroes here. They're great. So over the next couple of weeks, do you think there'll be more of them back on the road? I do believe that more and more will come on. Um, you know, it's a whole new world and a whole new city for yeah. us, right? So we'll have to wait to see what happens and how, how people adjust. And hopefully this, you know, virus settles down and doesn't explode again for us in September. But uh, I do believe we're going to get more and more to come back on as we're going to get more and more people, you know, trusting and, and learning this new world of social distancing. And it's okay to... to to move it's okay mm-hmm. to go outside a lot of people are just so afraid they don't want to go outside right that's so true but carolyn thanks so much for telling us about it today thanks simmy appreciate that safe. best of luck that is carolyn bauer the general manager at yellow cab in vancouver we'd seen this story out of toronto where the union that represents taxi drivers at pearson airport said that they had lost 10 members who have died because of COVID-19. But here in Vancouver, that has not been the situation. As you heard Carolyn Bauer explain, they jumped on it pretty early. They've put plastic shields up in the cabs. They're doing the disinfectant. They're doing the cleaning of the cabs more often. They've got face masks for the drivers uh, and they've got disinfectant in every car, which is carried all the time. And they think that is what has made the difference here. But it certainly is a stark comparison between the two cities. Uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that. But a trip also way down, as Carolyn Bauer told us. Right now, they're doing about 3,000 trips a day. Uh, That is down more than 7,000 trips uh, from what they would normally be doing at this time of year. So there's more to come. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you've ever been up to Prince George, then you are very familiar with Mr. PG. It stands 27 feet tall. Looks like a man made out of lumber wearing a baseball hat. That's, in fact, exactly what Mr. PG is. Well, get this. Uh, Prince George is celebrating a milestone today because Mr. PG, their mascot, is 60 years old. Wow, that is impressive. So our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak to the mayor of Prince George, Lynn Hall, about this huge occasion. Friday, May 8th is our mascot's birthday. Mr. PG, he turned 60 years old. You know, he's been around, obviously, for 60 years, but he's in a great location in our city. He's at the intersection of Highway 16 and Highway 97. I'll tell you, he, uh, he gets a lot of pictures taken with people, and he's, he, he's quite the mascot. He's had a great history. Yeah, let's talk about that history. What is Mr. PG's origin story? Where did he come from? Well, the mayor of the day, Harold Moffat, who owned Northern Hardware, and it's been around for 100 years here in Prince George, um, he felt the city needed a mascot. And because we're so heavily dependent on the forest sector and have been for years, that because of that forest industry, they decided that they would take a look at putting together Mr. PG. So he was replicating a spruce tree and that's how he was born and from what i understand mr pg he's racked up some miles over the years he's done quite a bit of traveling hasn't he well he has you know his debut was at an international rotary conference at the simon fraser Inn here in prince george his his next appearance in any kind of parade was in 1961 we have an elks day parade here and that's sort of his first parade that he participated in uh, and then he uh, participated in the in the Great Cup Parade in Vancouver, I think, in the very, very early 60s. And that was a real 
a real hit and did parades throughout the entire province. I was actually reading on uh, the website ckpgtoday.ca a great quote. It says, In 1963, he became the talk of the nation when he participated in the Grey Cup Parade in Vancouver. I love that so much. When you talk to people in Prince George, you know, what do they say in regards to Mr. PG? I bet he's pretty well loved up there, eh? He is well loved and in his current location, you know, we change him up quite often. So uh, we have the ability to fly various flags, whether it's for, uh, you know, fundraisers or to uh, recognize certain events in our community or recognize certain events that are taking place throughout Canada. Uh, we have that ability to raise the flag uh, with Mr. PG. Uh, as you know, we were supposed to have the World Women's Curling Championships here, but because of the pandemic, they were canceled, but we had them. Uh, decked out in some curling attire. Uh, So we're able to dress them up to meet the need and and whatever might be happening in the community that we want to recognize. Yeah, now the big event that you want to celebrate is Mr. PG's birthday, except with the pandemic, I bet that's kind of thrown a bit of a wrench into some of your plans, eh? So working around the pandemic, how do you plan on celebrating this big day? Because I know that you guys have quite a bit of stuff planned. Yeah, we do have quite a bit, and but all of it will be things that are generated so that families can do it in their, you know, in the comfort of their home, uh, because of social distancing and and the orders that are in place, uh, we have to abide by, and so uh, we're going to celebrate it, but we're going to do it uh, hopefully, you know, residence by residence, and people just uh, having a lot of fun uh, doing certain things and different things with their family at home. Uh, so there was a couple things that. You know, we had suggested if you want to have a selfie with Mr. PG, take a look at that. Uh, we've got a, a, a Mr. PG coloring page created by a person here in the uh, in the city. And, and you can go on Facebook as well, Mr. PG Facebook. And, uh, you know, you can put up photos. You can talk about uh, your experiences with Mr. PG. And I know that there are some that have already called me and said, you know, we were around when uh, Mr. PG made his debut. We want to hear about that history. What's your favorite personal memory of Mr. PG? Well, it's interesting. I guess a couple things. My uh, my mother-in-law had a hand in designing Mr. PG, and uh, so you've got a real family connection uh, to Mr. PG. And uh, when I first came to Prince George 30-some years ago, he was in a different location. And ironically, I'd come to Prince George quite often as a young guy, and when I eventually moved here, uh, rolled into town, and he was really the first person that I saw. Uh, there he was, Mr. PG, as big as life. And and it's interesting for me to say the first person I saw, because that's kind of the way people relate to him. He was like one of us. And uh, so I have a real strong memory, uh, you know, based on the family connection, but also based on the fact that I, um, I, as I said, he was the first thing I saw when I rolled into town. I was hoping that story was going to end with you saying, and that's why I chose Mr. PG to be the best man at my wedding. Oh, no. (laughs) No, he wasn't the best man at my wedding. And, you know, it's interesting because there have been couples uh, who have taken wedding photos in front of Mr. PG. Uh, He's just so iconic. And to be around for 60 years and be as popular today as he was 60 years ago is really something. And he doesn't look a day over 10. He doesn't look a day over 10. He's had a couple of makeovers. Uh, No facelift, though, uh, but a couple of makeovers. And we treat him with uh, kid gloves. We want to make sure that he looks his finest. I love that. Mayor Lynn Hall of Prince George, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun chatting with you. You know, we really appreciate you recognizing Mr. PG and what we're doing here. So thanks very much, Nikki.
That's our Nikki Reitmeyer talking with the mayor of Prince George, Lynn Hall, because it is the 60th birthday of their mascot, Mr. PG, 27 feet tall. You know, he's the man made out of lumber wearing a baseball hat. And if you're not quite sure what Mr. PG looks like, just take a look at any live hit that Richard Zussman is doing this week on Global News or on BC One, uh, because I'm pretty sure one of his kids have drawn a picture of Mr. PG and it's in the background on the bookshelf there. And you know what? It is very well done. So congratulations to Prince George celebrating a milestone. This is Mornings with Simi. The reality will be that if people don't want to sit in the middle seat for some time to come, that the days of packed flights at discounted prices may be over. That's Claire Newell from Travel Best Bet. She was talking with our Charles Adler the other day about air travel. I mean, yes, it's still allowed. Airline industry is still kind of trying to limp along there. But there's not a whole lot of people flying right now. So what happens when things start to kind of get back to normal? Are people ready to get back on airplanes? Now, when I asked this question yesterday to you, just floated it out there and said, you know what, send me an email if you're, tell me how you're feeling about that idea of getting on an airplane. And send me at cknw.com. Every single email I got, I got about a dozen of them in about 10 minutes. Every single one said, nope. And many of them were business travelers, people who spend a lot of time on airplanes and just said, I am not ready to do this right now. We wanted to talk more about this issue. Joining us now is Jennifer Weatherhead Harrington, a travel expert from travelandstyle.ca. Jennifer, thank you for being here. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. What do you think about getting on an airplane? I mean, I am someone who travels for a living and I love traveling, so I'm itching to get somewhere, but right now I'm kind of thinking more in the road trip vicinity than airplanes. Um, I know they're anxious to get going again, and, and airlines have suffered a great deal during this pandemic. You know, their their value has gone down quite a bit, but I mean, I think I would feel more comfortable as I'm hearing more and more about what they're doing to ensure the safety of passengers. I think it's no... Um, it's no secret that people kind of complained about the cleanliness of airplanes for quite some time, you know, and now they're stepping up and they're saying, we're doing this disinfecting. We're going to be cleaning the trays. We're going to do this in between flights. And I think that's really, really great for them to do. And it helps make us feel a bit more comfortable and same with the blocking of the middle seat. Um, But I think people are still going to be a bit wary and it might be a little bit of, you know, some time for people to feel comfortable about doing that travel again. And also, it sounds like not every airline is buying into this keeping the middle seat empty situation. Yeah, I know. I mean, definitely for me personally, I feel like I would want the middle seat to be empty, at least for this, this, you know, time period until there's a vaccine or until there's some kind of more, um, you know, kind of a a firm answer to what this virus is. Um, So... I would probably, if I were to fly, I would be opting to fly with an airline that is blocking that middle seat that has put out a contingency plan on how they're cleaning in-depth detail on that kind of thing. I would be researching that a lot before I booked my flight. Do you think airlines understand, Jennifer, that the way they're going to get people back is by telling them and showing them that they're taking these precautions? Because I'm not sure every airline understands that yet. I mean, I hope so. I think it's, to me, it's something that should have been done, at least to some extent, maybe not to the same as we are now, but like the cleanliness was always an issue I found personally. I always had my own sanitary wipes with me on a plane. Um, So I really hope that they're taking this um, 
to heart and they're really thinking about how the customer is going to feel because they're not going to fill those seats unless people are comfortable traveling again. And I think that's the biggest issue with tourism right now is making people feel comfortable and not wary about going to places. So airlines play a really big role in that. That's so true. So will there be, do you think, um, a set of standards that airlines across North America do adhere to? Because it seems like right now, you know, WestJet and Air Canada have their standards and they're good, uh, you know, and they're working on making them better. But in the U.S., it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, so I think it will be something, I think it's great that Air Canada and WestJet have stepped up and that they are some of the airlines that are making these changes and making commitments to their passengers. I think it will need to be a, a definitely a North American or international thing. Something will need to come out that kind of has a level of cleanliness, a level of safety for passengers. Um, just kind of like, you know, how other safety precautions are standard with airlines. I think this will become a new standard eventually. Well, we shall see. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you so much. That is Jennifer Weatherhead-Harrington. She's a travel expert from travelandstyle.ca. And as you heard her say, she travels a lot for business, or did anyway. And right now she's thinking road trip more than she is getting on an airplane. And I think that is the case for so many people out there. I heard from a lot of business travelers yesterday saying the same thing, that they are just not prepared at this point uh, to getting on an airplane. I used to tease Claire Nill. I, I, I really do owe her an apology. I used to tease her all the time because she was one of those people uh, who would get on the airplane and wipe everything down, you know, with the travel, the wet wipes, all that kind of stuff. And she's absolutely right. No doubt about it. I think more and more people are going to be doing that as well. How safe do you feel on the idea of air travel? Or do you want to wait and see that they make sure there are a set of standards that they are following? Maybe you just want to put off air travel for a while. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Phase four won't be enacted until there's a vaccine, treatments for COVID-19, or community immunity has been achieved. And until these things happen, BC will not be hosting rock concerts and conventions or any other large gatherings beyond 50 people. Premier John Horgan earlier this week talking about the fourth and final phase of the reopening plan for the province of British Columbia. Let's face it, though, conventions, things like that, that is big business for the economy of this province. They're huge. And the Canada Employment Relief Benefit is already two months into its four-month duration. So what comes next for people who are laid off indefinitely, watching the weeks tick by, and when it seems like it's going to be quite a few more months before things even get back to a semblance of normal. To talk more about this, we're joined by Carla Qualtro, the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce and Disability Inclusion. Thank you for being back with us. Well, thanks for having me. Now, I know every province is doing this a little bit differently, but do you think the country is ready to start kind of resuming this path? You know, I think like everyone is is saying, we have to be super cautious because we don't want to get ahead of ourselves or ahead of the data or the science. As I watch what's happening in BC, I think it's being done really responsibly. Um, and we really have to be aware that, as you said, things are happening differently in different regions of the country, including where outbreaks are, the numbers. And so we're going to have to be flexible as a federal government to be able to respond to the different realities that are happening around our country. Right. But the clock is kind of ticking on the benefits, right? Because that is a four-month window for those benefits. And it doesn't sound like things are going to be back to normal after that four months. Yeah. So the benefit is for 16 weeks. And the first 16 weeks, 
if someone took it from the very beginning, will expire around July 15th or 16th, depending on your math. So we know that people are anxious to know what comes next for the CERB. And quite frankly, with a number of our programs that are expiring June, July, August. And that's exactly what we're looking at right now. The Prime Minister announced this morning that the wage subsidy will go beyond June 6th. So businesses should have um, take comfort in the fact that, that, you know, we don't know exactly how long it's going to go for. And we're working that out right now with business leaders, but they can be assured that that particular program will go on beyond June. Right. But we don't know about the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. Well, the CERB is a little more complicated because we're waiting to see how the wage subsidy impacts uptake of the CERB. As of today, we've got about 7.76 million people who've applied for it. We've had about 11.2 million applications and spent about $29 billion on this initiative. So we want to know what comes next. How do we not disincentivize work? Do we gradually wind it down? Do we focus on the wage subsidy? We're looking at that right now, um, but we're really well, we're really aware that people need certainty and this is such an uncertain time. What about some programs that haven't even fully gotten rolled out yet, like the student benefits, post-secondary students? Well, the student benefit is for the months of May through August, and with the intent that that will be a four-month program. Um, in fact, under the legislation that we created to do this benefit, it can't go beyond September 30th unless we go back to Parliament and extend it. But the idea there is really to focus on the four months that students would have otherwise had employment before they go back to school in the fall. Right, but when is that going? when are students going to be able to apply for that? Oh, sorry, yes. So as of uh, the end of next week. So by the end of next week, the portal will be up. It will be effective for May payments. So they'll get a payment of May, then June, July, and August, four payments. Um, And by the end of next week, like the CERB, they'll be able to apply through a very simple portal that is is attestation-based and very straightforward with a payment pretty much immediately. Right. Is it challenging for the government here to know that in some provinces, things may change, you know, for the positive sooner than, say, in other provinces? And will these support programs reflect that? Well, it's a little premature to say that we might have different programs in different uh, provinces, but absolutely it's a challenge when you've got different realities across the country. Outbreaks are happening differently in different provinces, provinces, pardon me. Um, So that's why it's so important for our public health officials at the federal level to be working with every single province. It's why we're working, each of us with our provincial counterparts, to really see what comes next and if it maybe has to be more of a tailored approach. Right. You say for now, though, the government is, is aware that this may not just be a couple of months. Oh, absolutely. We know for sure. And and there's nothing, we don't want to abandon workers or businesses. We are doing everything we can to get people and businesses through this so that when we do ramp things up, that there are businesses left, that people have jobs and that they can go back to them as, and this won't happen, but as seamlessly as, as possible. All right. Minister Qualtrill, thank you for your time. My pleasure. It's Carla Qualtrough, the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion. There's been some concerns that some of these programs that were announced early are going to run out, essentially, before we're kind of ramping up and getting back to normal. That essentially this pandemic economic situation is going to last longer than the programs that were designed to help people out through them. For one, the wage subsidy program, as the minister mentioned, there is being extended beyond the beginning of June. So that'll be good news for businesses. But of course, there's still the Canada Emergency Response Benefit as well. That's good for 16 weeks, but that'll come up in July. And some people, you know, may not still be back to work at that point, given how quickly their province is reopening. So there's more to come on that. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as we know this morning, the big news is that the labor force survey for the month of April has been released. Not good news. Not that anybody was expecting good news, but it's still pretty severe. There was a drop of more than 1 million people being employed in March and employment fell by nearly 2 million in April. So that's all, of course, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But we wanted to get a deeper dive into these numbers now. For more on that, Kevin Milligan joins us, Associate Professor of Economics at UBC. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. Okay, so you've had a chance to look these over. What has struck you from these new labor force numbers? Well, let me give you a a pessimistic take and an optimistic take. The the more pessimistic one is that over a third of Canadians uh, are, are essentially not working right now. So those are people who are unemployed. There are people who are on furlough, just not getting any hours right now, but kept their job. Mm-hmm. And there are people who have, you know, just given up looking. Um, so that's kind of the bad news story that we're under underusing our economic potential by quite a bit. But the good news part of that is the majority of those folks have actually kept their attachment to their jobs. So they're either, you know, the ones who are furloughed, who just aren't getting any hours right now, but kept their job. There are also people who are unemployed, but are on a temporary unemployment. So they know who their employer is, and their employer said, look, we're just going to lay you off for a while, hope to see you again in a, in a few weeks. So for those folks, they kept some attachment to their job, and there's hope that as the economy restarts, right. a lot of those folks will get back to work. Yeah, I find that that's a lot of people, though. Wouldn't you say that's the majority of people? Like everybody I've talked to have said that they're laid off temporarily from their job. Yeah, and that's right. Uh, among those who are laid off, over a million of them uh, since the beginning of the crisis are on temporary layoff. And it's a much, much, much smaller, like around 100,000 are on uh, more regular kind of layoff. So what that means is that there's some hope that those people will be called back. Now, I don't mean to blow too much sunshine here because, you know, some of those people who were told that it's going to be temporary, it might turn out not to be so. So I'm not trying to make things sound super sunny here. It, this is a big problem for many people and many families across B.C. But um, there is some reason for hope there that a lot of those folks who are off work right now uh, will be able to get back to work in the weeks to come. Right, Kevin, I think people hold on to that hope, though, right? Like That's that's pretty much all I, I, we I, have. I, I, I'm trying to do that myself. I'm, I'm a numbers guy. I'm trying to stick to what the numbers say, but the numbers say that a lot of people have kept connection to their jobs. So when, when we see these big unemployment numbers and these big drops in employment, it's useful to keep that in mind. Right. And do you think that's also perhaps what has prevented getting some of the jobs that are available filled? Is that people feel like, well, I don't need to take that job because my other one's going to start up now anytime. Yeah, I mean, there are some uh, employers out there who are actually, you know, looking to to hire on. And I think one of the factors is that people maybe want to hold on to the job they already have. Another big important factor there, of course, is the virus itself. Lots of people are afraid to go to work for very reasonable reasons. Maybe they have an elderly relative living in the home or they have someone with immune-compromised status in the home. And so they're just afraid to go to work. And so I think the best thing we can do for our economy is to crush this virus. We're doing a pretty good job in BC, but the job isn't done yet. The more we can push this down, the safer everyone will feel going back to work, the safer everyone will feel going out shopping and back to restaurants, and the, and the faster we can restore our economy. So job one is crushing the virus. Yeah. It's remarkable, though, isn't it, Kevin, how people feel that? Like, I feel there is a unity in that message, knowing I am going to get back to work, but I don't want to do that at the expense of public health. 
I, I think that's great, and I think that uh, our governments, both federal and uh, provincial, have done a good job at providing income support for most folks on that. They can feel like they can take some time off and make sure that we crush the virus first. There will come a time in the, in the weeks that come, though, when, you know, we've done a pretty good job here in B.C., and it'll be time to, you know, put down the benefits and get back to work. And I, I think that's what we will be seeing as we start opening up our economy later in the month. So do you think then those April numbers that we're talking about today, do you think these are the worst of the worst? Is this the bottom? Well, if you look at a place like B.C., where we're kind of a bit ahead of the curve compared to the rest of the country, you know, we're not thinking about relaxing restrictions until after after the holiday weekend, right? right? So I think that May may end up looking, you know, a bit kind of like April in terms of the labor force survey. But after that, I, I really do think we are pretty close to the bottom. And what kind of recovery do you think like needs to be looked at here? Like what kind of support do you think the economy needs from the government? I think uh, what we need to see is, uh, uh, you know, supporting families, as we've seen with the different kind of benefits, but also supporting the business sector with, uh, you know, we've had the uh, line of credit emergency account. We've had some movement on rental relief for commercial landlords and tenants. And that's the kind of thing we need, because think about when we get to the other side, there has been a lot of debt created at the individual level and also at the firm level. And if everyone feels like they're weighed down by debt, they're not going to want to get back out there and spending. It's what we need to do with our benefits and our support for all of the sectors of the economy is to make sure that people arrive on the other side of the crisis feeling like they can resume their economic right. activity. That matters, you know, on the health side, they want to feel safe, but they also want to feel like they're not overly loaded with debt going into, uh, uh, into the summer. So that's one of the big roles that the benefits and the support has played is allowed both households and businesses to hit the other side with less debt than they otherwise would have. I mean, that's, that's the apprehension, right, about what's waiting for us on the other side is, yeah, you may be able to get back to work, but are we all going to be farther set back in our economic goals? You know, for, for, some, for some sectors and some people, things are going to continue pretty well. But we really want to make sure that we don't be too sunny here because there are sectors, think of the tourism sector, which yeah. is a big deal here in Vancouver. I mean, there, there's really, I have no optimism to say there. A realistic take is that we're not going to see international tourists of any magnitude for the rest of the year. That's what we heard from the Premier and, and Bonnie Henry on Wednesday. And I think that's a realistic take. I don't think there's a big glamour to open the borders right now, especially especially our border to the south, um, for tourists right now. I, I think that the tourism sector, and it's a big one, is going to have a lot of troubles over the months to come. And I think we need to make sure that our government is, you know, perhaps moving beyond the benefit structure we've seen, which was kind of a temporary emergency benefit structure, and moving into uh, uh, support that helps those industries that have been just wiped out by this. Right. Kevin, thanks for breaking it all down with us. Happy to help. Appreciate that. That's Kevin Milligan, the Associate Professor of Economics at UBC, talking to us about the April Labor Force Survey, which, I mean, there's very little that, you know, is hopeful about that. Hopefully, though, it will be the worst of the surveys that we see in the months ahead. Uh, but we'll be talking more about that, I'm sure. This is Mornings with Simi.
We know the tourism industry has been hit particularly hard in this pandemic. And of course, that is also the situation here in Metro Vancouver. A lot of short-term rentals that are sitting empty right now. Many have tried to probably rent them out, right? More long-term. But what about the ones that are still empty? Well, for more on this, we're joined by Airbnb's Canadian Head of Public Policy, Alex Dagg. Alex, thanks for being here. Good morning, Sumi. Thanks for having me on. How huge of an impact has all of this had on Airbnb? Well, you know, it's it's uh, obviously been tough times for everyone. And when our companies in the travel industry that, uh, you know, where virtually the world is at a standstill, you can imagine, you can imagine what the challenges have been for a travel-based company. So, We've been really working hard to uh, look at ways that we can help out during this pandemic. And uh, one of the things we've been doing is extending um, housing to frontline stay responders. And so we're happy to be able to help play a positive role during this super challenging times for everyone. Okay, so how does that work then? How do healthcare responders get into this Airbnb program? Yeah, so we recently partnered uh, with another charity called Hope Air, which is this wonderful charity that's been around for many years. We partnered with them in the past, and what they have focused on is really providing medical transportation to people from remote communities, um, helping provide them access to healthcare by flying people to regional hospitals where they can get the kind of service they need. And so during this pandemic, there's been less of that happening, and so but they have networks with hospitals already in place. So mm-hmm. we're partnering with them. So any frontline responder who needs a place to stay, who would like to be able to have space away from their family. So, you know, in case they're um, concerned about being exposed and need private space, they can contact Hope Air directly through their website and they can book um, Airbnb listings right through them for free. And our Canadian host Airbnb host community is stepped up to offer free housing or low-cost housing uh, all across the country for frontline stay, frontline responders to stay in. Okay, so then very quickly, it's just they have to go to the Hope Air website to find out more. Yes. All right. Yes, uh, that's the best place to go, but they can also just go onto our website independently too. Um, so airbnb.ca slash COVID-19 responder and look for housing. But Hope Air has some budget and mm-hmm. they can assist bookings or free stays in uh, the Metro Vancouver area. All right. Sounds like a plan. Alex, thanks for talking to us. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you.